0: Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Really excited today to talk about communication, to talk about instructional communication in particular. And to do so, I'm joined today by Michael Strauser, who is an associate professor of communication at the University of Central Florida. Michael, welcome to
1: Trending in Education. Hey, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation.
0: Yeah, likewise. It's an interesting space. I do Follow communication more closely. Having done so many of these podcasts, among other things, we always start by getting to know our guests a little bit better. Can you catch our listeners up on what got you to this point in your professional life?
1: Yeah. So, big picture, I've been at UCF since 2019. So, before that, and you, you got to think, you know, in terms of the context of higher ed, UCF is either the second or third largest university in the country, depending on the year. So, it's mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. pretty massive. But uh, my family and I moved down here in 2019. I came from a very small liberal arts private university in Louisville. So like 3,200 students. So it was oh, wow. a it was culture shock when we moved down. But I, yeah, did my PhD at the University of Kentucky in instructional communication. I know we're going to flesh that out a little bit, but personal note, I've got five kiddos. My oldest is nine. So wow, wow. Ain't nobody sleeping in my house.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for your service, Being, uh, <laughs> keeping them under control as best you can. You have to at least go minivan, right? When you get that many?
1: Yeah, we have to go minivan. We have we have friends who actually are expecting their seventh. Wow. And uh, yeah, speaking of thank you for your service. And they are having like a custom transit van built. Right. And whew!
0: by the time you go seven, it's almost full on reality television at that point. Although I imagine it gets pretty uh, chaotic and entertaining with your five. That's probably another episode. That's like an entirely different is. angle. But at the same time. You know, communication has got to be key and parenting. It's certainly key when it comes to education. You mentioned instructional communication, which is intriguing to me. Can you catch folks up on what is instructional communication and what's the problem space that it's focused on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think the best statement to describe it in terms of baseline is instructional communication researchers look at communication in instruction. So literally, any instructional context, like how does communication manifest? And it can be, you know, in terms of bringing it close to home, like it it can be as simple as looking at communication in our college courses as faculty members. Mm -hmm. So how does communication either, you know, positively impact or influence learning versus how does it kind of negatively impact learning Mm -hmm. or even bigger picture? Like I, you know, I live in Florida, so we have hurricanes all the time, but an instructional message could be, hey, you got to evacuate. There's a hurricane coming. And I, I, you know, I was thinking about it this morning, just as I was thinking about our conversation and we moved down. and I mentioned this, we moved down in 2019 and the fall of 2019, I think it was Hurricane Irene. I need to go back Mm -hmm. and double check that. But Mm -hmm. we had never really known anything about hurricanes. And we moved down here from Kentucky and I'm talking, Mike, it was weeks before this hurricane. The media is telling me it's the apocalypse, like Florida's going to be underwater. We're going to separate from Georgia. We're going to be an island. You know, 49 states, get ready. The day that the hurricane was supposed to hit, my family and I were in at Disney World. And the only people who were in line for rides were locals. All the tourists stayed home because they were scared of the hurricane. 80, sunny, beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody evacuates the state that lives here. Fast forward that to fall of 2022, last year with Ian, that literally decimates the entire west coast of Florida. Right. We're getting the same instructional messages like, hey, right. you got to evacuate. Right. Here's what you need to do. Here are the behaviors you need to follow. What happens? Nobody listens. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we're numb to all of these different realities in terms of the messages that we hear that yeah. hopefully lead to behavior change. So that's mm-hmm. so in essence, that's probably the, one of the best kind of examples I can give. An instructional communication researcher goes, as we think about the messages that we're sending and how we're sending messages that are instructive in nature, mm-hmm. how are we doing so in a way that is effective mm-hmm. and actually gets people to do something different
0: that's interesting yeah and it's got to be particularly interesting thinking about instruction over that span of time you're talking about 2019 until now there was the great migration to zoom and the trail of tears back to the classroom Now hybrid classes everywhere not to mention the really complex media landscape that we're all inundated with all the time I imagine all those things intersect with thinking about instructional communication. Can you kind of set the context around like what it's been like doing your job over the crazy span of the last five years?
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I I equate going back to my five kids. I, I tell people when they ask me like, well, what's it like having five kids? And I, I say that it's almost like I'm living in this reality where every day is a blended version of. The movie Groundhog Day with, with Bill Murray yeah. and an episode of ER, where it's like every day is exactly the same, mm. but there's blood and there's <laughs> broken bones, and like everything has this sense of urgency. Mm. To a certain extent, honestly, I've, I've kind of felt like that with higher ed yeah. for the last few years, where mm. every day seems the same, mm-hmm. but the sense of urgency is so prevalent yeah. uh, that you know, what used to be a decision that we could take time to think about. Just, we don't have that luxury anymore. So, you know, I think it's important, you know, you mentioned that that little tiny kind of global pandemic. It's funny when you think about messages, the CDC now has come out and basically said like, hey, we butchered our messaging at the right. beginning of the pandemic. And it, right. and it wasn't even that the messages were wrong. It's just they were contradictory. Mm-hmm. and And that really forces you to lose credibility pretty quickly with your audience. It's the same thing with higher ed like what messages have we been sending in terms of teaching and it's funny now that we're on this side of it because you know emergency remote teaching is not what i would consider to be pure online teaching like it it was emergency remote teaching Mm -hmm. so it's different like there is we had to survive it was survive in advance and we're now going back and saying all right we cannot live by this emergency remote teaching mentality how do we get back to good pedagogy? How do we get back to good you know, rapport building and relationship building with our students Yeah. while recognizing that, that they want flexibility and autonomy? It's a really interesting time for higher head, honestly, that started, in my opinion, in, in 2008 with the recession. Like that's really where we started to see some trends really pick up. And the pandemic just exacerbated a lot of things that I think were were felt realities the decade before. And now we're trying to come back and go,
0: what what are we,
1: like, what does this look like for us?
0: Right. It's interesting to think about the combinatorial effects of the pandemic and other things like the exponential, like we already had a social media problem. We already had a screen time problem pre-pandemic. And then for three years, folks were, kids were forced onto their phones. And now we're trying to reach learners, reach educators in the aftermath of all that. It's a really profound responsibility. I imagine it also connects to like centers for teaching and learning and, you know, professional development and ongoing support of teaching as a practice in higher ed. Can you talk about that? It's got to be, you know, challenging, but also probably really eye opening to be as close to other teachers. You know, a lot of folks in higher ed kind of operate more in isolation, but it seems like by the nature of your work you're really getting close to the actual practice of teaching in a classroom
1: yeah and i'll tell you you know in terms of i'm a little bit of a uh, i call myself an academic orphan where i feel like i kind of live in these worlds between communication and education but then very practically as part of what i do i'm i'm the managing editor of the journal of faculty development and do a lot of kind of faculty training in terms of teaching, Mm -hmm. partly because I like it. And honestly, partly selfishly, like I feel like every time that I engage in those conversations, it's just helpful for me to learn and and kind of steal ideas from others. It's a really interesting space because, you know, I think a lot of times with learners, we perpetuate self-fulfilling prophecies. We kind of assume that because our traditional college age students are between the ages of 18 to 22 and are digital natives and all of these different types of things that they all want to learn a certain way. Mm-hmm. And that's just not true. That's just not true. So we kind of approach our classrooms as not, pandering is probably too too strong of a word, but like we we kind of teach to the masses when in reality we've got, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100, 200, 250 different individuals that are all sitting there going, you know what, different things are going to resonate. And the end goal is always learning. So what does it look like in the midst of, you know, this environment, that has forced them to Zoom, which in some ways have wonderful realities. Like it does increase flexibility. It does increase autonomy. I think it increases access. Those are all good things. Yeah. Is learning occurring? And, you know, we saw a lot of students in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic even start to sue their universities, like saying, hey, this is not what I signed up for. Yeah, it's still a little bit of the wild, wild west. So I think, you know, good instructional strategy doesn't necessarily change. I, I just think you have to kind of step back and go, in the midst of this context, in the midst of this audience, what do I need to do to, to achieve whatever those learning outcomes are for the course or what I'm trying to do? Right. So, yeah, there are some stalwarts that I think don't disappear. It's just a matter of how those manifest themselves in these different environments. Right.
0: And then staying on top of not just the instruction, but also the the media platforms through which it's being conveyed, this is where I like to quote Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. The, there's so many different media out there that it's hard to even get straight which message I'm trying to send, which should I be on TikTok? Should I be using ChatGPT? It's so overwhelming that I think a lot of people just are shutting down. And oh yeah, it's almost like, a, I think it's called cognitive tunneling, where when you're overwhelmed, you just kind of, focus on what you know, keep it yeah. very simple and just grind, 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 grind. I understand that reaction. I understand those emotions, but it's almost the opposite of what we want a good instructor to do, where that's more being open to feedback, being open to experimentation. How do you think about that? Medium is the message and just the complexity of all the new stuff that's out there in the world around us. It's got to be both fascinating and, and kind of overwhelming at the same time.
1: Uh, I think it makes me tired. If, if McLuhan knew what we have at our fingertips. I think his eyes would bug out of his head. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just it's just the sheer breadth of platforms is yep. un- it's unreal. It's unreal. Have you seen recent data? I mean, we're, we're starting to see not a severe drop off, but like in terms of of people actually posting to mm. social platforms, mm. we're starting to see the first decline that we've seen probably in a decade. So, like, we're we're starting to see people start to you know create. Uh, Quote, unquote, less content and Mm. post less. Mm. And I I think we're entering this this phase, honestly, where people are just tired. We're just tired. And, you know, it's funny as we think about teaching in that space and in that context, like there are there are some instructors that I think have a tendency to think of ed tech as wizardry and gadgetry. And so it's like whatever the next spell is, we're going to cast it and see what sticks. And man, that's just really bad pedagogy. Like you just have to really think there are so many different tools at your disposal. The tool is not the instruction. The tool is a tool. Right. So you mentioned, you know, chat GPT. Like I was a relatively, not one of the earliest adopters, but a relatively early adopter to chat GPT. And it saves me a ton of time. Yeah. And I use it to supplement a lot of assignments in my courses. Mm -hmm. But the reality is it's a tool. It's a tool. And so if all of my instruction focuses on a tool or focuses on what's new, Mm -hmm. It's it's, you're just going to be like a hamster on a wheel, always kind of spinning, 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 trying to figure it out. But it is it is interesting. I think we are collectively tired. We are bombarded with messages all the time. Right. And I think we're starting to see starting to see people kind of separate and differentiate from that. And I'm hoping for a collective deep breath, to be honest with you.
0: And what you're describing, I've heard from quite a few folks, too, that it's almost like the right mindset. It's like a growth mindset around technology and some flexibility where these are tools. I should at least be aware of them and maybe they can help me solve some problems. Right. Because the reality is the day to day of grading papers and doing a lot of the more routinized, you know, uploading stuff into a learning management system and just sort of this low value work that is central to higher education. There's a whole litany of things that are very baked into K-12 that are really low value, not high touch. Putting all that aside, there ultimately is this concept of instructional communication. And while we have you, I'd love to hear from you some tips or some suggestions, any ways of thinking. You mentioned pedagogy. I've also heard andragogy as something folks have talked about teaching adults and how there are some differences, you know, knowing your audience, but anything high level and or specific you think might be useful for our listeners who really span a wide cross section of archetypes within the learning universe. But if you wanted to boil it down to a few tips or ideas, anything jump to mind?
1: Yeah, you know, I'll nerd out if you'll let me here for Please. just a second, because yeah. uh in my opinion, instructional communication research is extremely applicable across the spectrum. We are communicating constantly through so many different facets and so many different means and so many different platforms. And, you know, the old stat of like the, what is it? 95% of what you, communication is 95% of what you don't say. Like, you know, who knows? But what I'm telling you is we're communicating constantly. And Mm. so as instructors, part of what we have to think about is just how are we doing that effectively? You know, with instructional research. We look at so many different variables. We've got how does an instructor misbehavior influence relationship with students? So how does my maybe I self disclose a little bit too much and right. kind of share some things? You are like, oh, right, well, that's good. Right. The flip side is we might have an instructor who discloses too little, and so their student sees them as robotic and sees them as less human because they don't share anything about their personal life, and you know they they feel like they're kind of closed off, or even like an instructor use of humor is a communication mechanism. That's a communication. Very, you know, it's funny. I, I share a lot less jokes in class than I used to because you never know, honestly, right. One might find offensive. So I just go, okay, I'm, I'm just going to make sure that I'm, I'm safe in all things in terms of what I'm saying and, and right. you were using, but my students today don't respond to my sarcasm. Like my students of 10 years ago, mm-hmm. like now they take that personal, they see that as standoffish. And so that yeah. changes, that changes how I communicate with my students. Right, so it's really I think it's fun underneath this instructional communication umbrella because there are just so many different ways to kind of conceptualize these different instructional realities in terms right. of what message we're sending, which that's the key. it's like it's messages, messages, messages. What message are we sending through what medium, and then how are we sending that message in terms of all of these other peripheries? So you asked about kind of some bigger picture tips. I think that clarity will never go out of vogue. Like, it's always going to be important. And the reality is, I think so many students, as they are bombarded with messages on a regular basis, like even think about, you know, the last time you, go to the, you drove to the grocery store, like think about how many billboards you passed, how many branded signs you passed. Mm-hmm. You are all the time, messages, 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 messages. So when we get their brains into this teaching instructional space, like we need to cut through all of the clutter. And just because an assignment description makes sense to you, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to make sense to your students. Mm -hmm. So how can you be exceptionally clear? I started a long time ago thinking about clarity in terms of efficiency. So what I mean by that is like my goal from a clarity perspective every semester is to diminish the number of emails that I receive from students. Mm -hmm. So I'm being really clear I shouldn't have that many emails. You know, I know I probably have colleagues with hundreds of emails in their inbox. I got two right now mm. because I'm just sitting there thinking through what are the questions that my students are going to ask me? Mm-hmm. How can I preemptively answer their question? And even like on online courses, it's like Pavlov's dog to a certain extent. How are we training them to receive the messages that we send? Right. If I do, this is very simple. But like if I do a weekly overview video where they know I'm giving them a preview of the week. And if I send that every week at nine, and if I require them to view it, and when they send me an email and say, Hey, I have a question about X, Y, and Z, and I say, Hey, you know what? I actually addressed that in the course overview video. I need you to go back and watch that. Instead of answering their question via email, it's amazing Mm -hmm. how quickly they go, Oh, okay, this guy's got his stuff together. He's going to be clear if I let him. Mm -hmm. You know, we forget a lot of times how much our brains are trying to process. So if we can be simple, Mm. I I mean, I think students resonate with that doesn't necessarily mean that learning is increased.
2: That's different,
1: right? But it at least means that the students are experiencing the content, I think, in a tangible way and are not overwhelmed. So that's probably the first one is just like, just be as clear as possible Mm -hmm. and even have second eyes, look at different things and say, hey, does this make sense? Catalog student comments and responses to what you're doing and go, Okay, when I posted this, I got. 10 new emails about it. I must not have been clear. Right. How do I solve those issues? Yeah. Um, That's that's the first one. The other one, I think, in terms of higher level is that, you know, just because our students like us does not mean that they are learning the content. Mm -hmm. However, if our students like us, we have removed a significant barrier in terms of something that makes it harder for them to consume and learn the content. So like, right, right. what can you do to increase rapport and relationship? Like mm-hmm. using names, even using names and emails, it takes you two extra seconds to write their name back as right. opposed to just writing a one sentence response. You know, being able to ask follow-up questions if they share a personal experience. Like, hey, what, you know, you doing all right with that? Like, how did how did that make you feel? You know, you, you okay? Those are simple things that at the very least remove barriers to learning and can kind of really help differentiate instructors as relationship builders and effective communicators.
0: I love it. It's also probably relevant for podcasters too. So some of that I'm certainly taking to heart. It does also remind me, I I recently read a book by Kevin Roos, who's one of the tech reporters, columnists for the New York Times. It's called Future Proof, and it's nine rules on how to be sort of resilient and ahead of some of the waves of automation and some of the disruptions that we're anticipating nowadays. And interestingly, teachers were one of the jobs that was out there as being pretty future proof, especially K-12 teachers, where it's going to be a long time before you're starting to put robots into classrooms. And a lot of what teachers do is, and the other thing, in the, it's a great book. I really would recommend it to our listeners recommending to humans that we be surprising social and scarce that's good which which i thought was good and it did it made me think about communication where if my communication is surprising it's in a social context and then there is some sense of like it's important when you get it because we're so there's so much spam and so much low value information out there in the world around us i'd love to hear a little more from you on like from a communication perspective how are you thinking about all the stuff that's out there and you know it's almost like we have to get better at filtering finding the the signal in the noise oh. you know clearing all of the extraneous stuff out of the way which is why when you talked clarity yeah. it rang a few bells in my head
1: yeah it's funny you mentioned spam my oldest daughter who is 7 I love this story. She got a hold of my phone one day when it ran, and she looked at it. She was going to tell me who was calling me, and she said, "Dad, why does potential spam call you all the time?" And I said, Bim, I don't know, I don't know." So every time the phone rings, she goes, "Dad, tell potential spam to call back later." We are—I mean, it's unreal. It's unreal. Yeah, yeah. you know. So it's—it's it's so funny. It's really—I I think that there's a level from a higher ed perspective where I've heard from a lot of people. A lot of my colleagues, not even necessarily University of Central Florida, but a lot of different institutions who are who are worried about their jobs. Now, Mm -hmm. I think you'll appreciate and I think your listeners will appreciate the historical context of this. So I did my my dissertation, my Ph.D. when we kind of saw a rise in what I would call like pure blended courses, like we really kind of started to see hybrid classes start to take off a little bit. That was also around the time, not when MOOCs started, but when they started becoming more mainstream Mm -hmm. and. My colleagues were having the same conversations then, This is, you know, 10, 11 years ago compared to what they are now, which was oh, all these massive online open courses are going to put me out of a job. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Said so the same thing, honestly, decades ago, when we started to see a pure advent of e-learning, I still vividly remember this because I thought it was so cool. But as a graduate student, an early graduate student, one of the first articles I read about e-learning was an article from like the mid 90s <laughs> where it was talking about they were giving women in India courses throw flip phones. And so literally like you would read these messages, full online courses that were coming to you through a flip phone. And I'm going, wow, that's awesome. This is not a new conversation. I think we go through these periods where we get really nervous collectively as faculty that we're going to be replaced Mm -hmm. or that the institution, something's going to happen to the institution, it's going to fold. I'm not ready to say that with AI. Like I, again, you know, let's have this same conversation in three years. I might be saying something different.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But higher ed's pretty resilient, and you know, even though we're incorporating a lot of the systems that began in the 1800s, it's a pretty resilient institution. And faculty, I think, are pretty resilient. Uh, it's a pretty resilient career. Mm-hmm. So I think that that part of what we need to do is think about how do we emphasize our humanity in the midst of this. Mm-hmm. And I hate soft skills; like, I hate that term. I like human skills to think about yep. communication. But I don't think teachers are going to go out of style. I I really don't. And I've never felt nervous about that because there are so many things that go into good teaching other than just information transfer.
0: Yeah. And I've heard a lot about communication as one of the durable skills, one of the new economy skills. Uh, I've heard them also called power skills. They got a lot of names, but they are places where humans tend to outperform versus the bots, although that's part of why the the generative AIs are are scary in some ways because they're actually competing with us in places that maybe we didn't expect to see as much competition. But I'd love to hear a little more from you around where else instructional communication might make sense and where else maybe more communication training would be useful. As a parent of just one five-year-old, I am thinking about how If more communication and more media literacy and more like AI literacy, tech literacy, if all those things were built more into our early curriculum, I think it would really set us up for more success and set our young learners up to be able to succeed in a very complex and changing world that they're going to be working in. Any thoughts on broader applications of some of the stuff that you research and and ways to kind of get the message out so that the right people hear about it?
1: Yeah, I think that one of the key, you used a lot of key words there. I think one of the key words that you said was literacy. And, you know, it's really interesting. The USA Today, you know, stalwart publication, still written at an eighth grade reading level. And so the reality is, is that as you're communicating to the masses, mm mm-hmm. There is still a reality here where simple is better and we want to make sure that we are not overestimating literacy of our audience and literacy, not even necessarily in terms of like pure literacy of, of literally, can you read, but literacy in terms of, you know, what do you understand about all of these other facets of information that are coming to you? You know, it's, it's really, I do some generational differences research too,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that it kind of lends itself to kind of what I talk about and think about, but it's funny going to nerd out on you a little bit here. Please, again. you're in a so safe res- place,
0: Michael. No worries. Re-
1: safe safe place. That's good. ResumeBuilder.com came out with a survey, I think spring of, of 2023, so a little less than a year ago, where they interviewed, I think, a 1,000, maybe 1,200 different managers and asked them what generation is the most difficult generation to work with. Now, this is all cyclical. Like They were saying the same thing about millennials 10 years ago, so it is what it is. But obviously, like seventy one percent of these managers said, ah, these Gen Zers, these young bucks, like ah, they're terrible, they're terrible. You know, world gonna end. You know, the the apocalypse that hit Florida during the hurricanes gonna hit the whole country. Like, just get ready. That's not necessarily interesting that they said that about Gen Z. What was interesting was one of the reasons why, and across you know a lot of different dimensions, twenty eight or twenty nine percent of these managers said part of the reason why Gen Z is. A more or the most difficult generation to work with is because they felt like they were not tech savvy, digitally literate, and you're having the same reaction that most people do, which is, well, wait a second, I've been told this is the digital native generation; yeah. like they've grown up with tech. TikTok, well, yeah, TikTok. Oh my goodness, I have LinkedIn. That's all I have. I can't do. Mommy ain't got time for all these other things. I can't do it. I don't. I'm on. I'm on LinkedIn reluctantly. <laughs> All of this other stuff, I'm like, man, I, I can't do it.
0: You have five kids. No, no, no excuses oh. needed. You need a sensory deprivation tank. You don't need more social media. Yeah.
1: Every time I watch Stranger Things, I go, you know what I would love <laughs> is for someone to put me in a pool of water with a blindfold and shut the lights and leave the room and just let me be for an hour. I'm cool with that, man. That's that's uh, intervention I can get behind. I'm fine with it. But it's it's interesting that we look at Generation Z and we say. Oh, yeah, they know what they're doing. And and when they enter an organization, an organization will say, OK, well, you're young. Therefore, we're going to we're going to hand over our social media for you. Right. Having TikTok does not equate to being able to use a software in an organization that they've been using with very specific processes and procedures for the last yeah. 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. So all of these companies are going, you told us this generation was tech literate. Well, they're coming in and they don't know what's going on. Right. And they can't they can't adopt to you know, the tools that we're using and the processes that we're, that we're using when it comes to these different tools. So I think big picture, it's really interesting that we want to increase a tech literacy and a media literacy and all of these different literacies because we, we want our audiences to be able to know what is right, what is true, what is real. Mm-hmm. And I think to be able to be adaptable And the reality is, is that I think that literacy element across the spectrum will be the next key learning outcome that we need to think about. So it's two phases of literacy, like literally, can you read? Are you literate? Right. But then as you look at all of these different realities around you, how are you able to funnel through all of these different pockets of information that are coming at you Mm -hmm. and being able to be renaissance enough? to adapt to all of these different platforms and realities that are at your disposal. Mm-hmm. So I like to cite that resumebuilder.com survey because it's a really interesting tell mm-hmm. in terms of organizations are thinking about this younger generation to where they're going. You you promised us a uh, you know, bill of goods and they're coming in and we have to retrain them how to use all this tech. Well, I thought you said they were good at tech. Well, right. there's different layers of that, like different levels.
0: Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, there's a crisis of trust that they're growing up in. So I do understand why like feeling like an institution or, you know, I'm 90s generation Gen X, you know, for me getting a job was selling out. Power on. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) But, you know, like that's still the truth that's out there. And I think the institutions, these media platforms, the politics, there's a lot of places where it's easy to say, why bother? It's easy to say, "I, I just don't really want to engage. We're coming up on time here, Michael. Like I always try to find, raise a hope amidst what's complicated out there. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot for us to learn. There's a lot of places where I think people could ramp up better on being able to critically engage with what's out there. There's also places where the tools you were describing before that eighth grade level USA Today could yeah. also be the same article could be translated to fifth grade level using always. chat GPT or using something else out there. So there are some emerging upsides, even though all this stuff needs to be engaged with some criticality and some trepidation. But as we're wrapping up here, any final thoughts, any other comments or ideas you want to get out there for our listeners?
1: Yeah, you know, I think going back to what I said is I I genuinely hope we are moving towards a collective deep breath with all of these things. You know, I'm kind of mentioned my home in terms of feeling like a sense of urgency and my job in terms of feeling like a sense of urgency. I think it's easy to allow that sense of urgency to paralyze us. Mm. And as you mentioned, like we're along for the ride. Let's figure it out as we go. Like we don't have to figure out all of this stuff right now. We're okay. We're okay. Let's take a deep breath. Mm. Let's figure out in the midst, especially of all this teaching and learning stuff. Like we, we don't have to just adopt because it's new, but we have to think about always being adaptable and flexible and from an instructional comm standpoint always thinking about as a faculty member if i truly want to you know think about having a lasting influence and you know really reaching my students what are those different things that i can do to increase rapport mm. and credibility and relationship building mm. and increase clarity of message like those are good things to think about so that's probably the, the biggest thing I can think of here is just a, a summary of some different things that we talked about. We have a tendency to allow the urgent to press us down so much. And I, I, I think we're okay. I think we're okay. And I, I think it's it's a really exciting time in higher ed, but I also think it's a little bit of a scary time because it's it's new and it's different. We're pretty resilient collectively.
0: Yeah, it does remind me, I've been flying a, a, a bunch over the last couple of weeks and it is that idea of the, you put your own oxygen mask on first and it does seem like, our teachers, our instructors, higher ed, folks deserve some time for a little bit of self-care so that they're in a better place. And then if you want to build that rapport, you kind of have to have yourself correct you do. first. And, you know, that's where thinking about the whole teacher, thinking about really caring for everyone, including the frontline workers who are the folks in our classrooms, really important notes for us to remember as we head into 2024.
1: You are not your job. You are. And a, a really good illustration of this guy was at the gym this morning and one of my PhD students was was also at the gym. And he goes, you come here? And I said, yeah, usually three to four times a week. And he went, oh, I didn't know my my faculty members like did anything other than faculty. And I thought, oh, no, what yeah. are we doing? Like, what are we? This is the next generation of faculty. like Yeah, man, I got I, I got, yeah. I got a yeah. yeah. I have friends. I, I work out. I eat pizza like I don't know. I'm a real person. And it, it's you are not your job. Like yeah. it's it's facet of who you are. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's it's not the sole reality of who you are. So mm-hmm. I think I think that's a healthy perspective to have for any position, but especially as a as a university faculty member. Fantastic
0: stuff with Michael Strauser, Associate Professor of Communication at University of Central Florida. Thanks so much for joining me on today's show, Michael.
1: Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it.
0: And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please subscribe, tell your friends, write us a review, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.